Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. The year is 1965. Yes, it's another dip into the past, which we do at about this time of the year through the prism of documents in Irish foreign policy. That's a joint project, an initiative of the National Archives, the Royal Irish Academy and the Department of Foreign Affairs. And two years ago, we covered 1962 to 1965. Well, the project has just released another volume covering 1965 to 1969. And in this episode, you'll hear some very familiar themes that are still relevant today in the post-Brexit fallout on the island of Ireland. Here's who I'm going to be speaking to. My name is Kate O'Malley and I'm a historian with the Documents in Irish Foreign Policy series. I'm Michael Kennedy. I'm the executive editor of the Documents in Irish Foreign Policy series and I'm also a historian. I'm John Gibney. I'm also a historian with Documents in Irish Foreign Policy. Why don't you fade away? In the period covered in this volume, the UK is trying to get into the EEC, as is Ireland. And in an effort to show its readiness, Ireland has been making strides to ease trade across the border with Northern Ireland. I'll let Michael Kennedy first set the scene as it stands in 1965. We're picking up in a period where Ireland is looking outwards, increasingly outwards, further trying to increase the reach of its foreign policy globally. Now, at the core of foreign policy are British-Irish relations, relations with the EEC, and of course the UN is a signature area of Irish foreign policy. But broader than that, Ireland is trying to increase its global reach by trading with as many states as possible. And and in this period, we see the first visit by a Taoiseach to Japan. Jack Lynch goes to Japan in in August, uh, September 1968. Um, And that's kind of indicative of where Ireland is trying to to go internationally, to broaden the scope of its uh, international reach. And that can only be done, uh, certainly in the view of Taoiseach Sean Lamass and, and Taoiseach Jack Lynch, uh, by improving the, the size of the Irish economy, by improving standard of living, uh, by improving trade, you know, economic growth is at the core. And that brings us back to Europe and entry into the EEC. And at the core of Irish foreign policy in the mid-1960s is entry into the European Economic Community, as the EU was then, uh, as early as possible. And the incubus in the way here is the French President Charles de Gaulle and the French refusal to expand the European, uh, the EEC, and expand the European project uh, by letting in Britain. Uh, De Gaulle didn't feel that Britain was capable of being a member of the EEC. Uh, for various reasons. And the British and Irish economies were so linked at this stage that um, if Britain didn't get in, Ireland didn't get in. If Britain did get in, Ireland had to get in as well. And so uh, for Sean Lamass in the mid-1960s, the negotiation of an Anglo-Irish free trade area is critical here. And it's kind of the, the second best option after Ireland didn't get into Europe uh, it, it, the first time around in the early 1960s. Well, then to prepare the Irish economy for free trade and for Europe, Britain and Ireland would uh, negotiate and sign a free trade area agreement that would come into 
play in 1966. And this would prepare Irish manufacturers, agricultural exporters for the wider burst of free trade that eventual membership of the EEC would include. Uh, so, you know, free, free trade through the EEC is, is critical. The European project is critical to Ireland. John, before we get into the workings of, of Anglo-Irish trade, is there anything particular that de Gaulle doesn't like about the Irish or are we just suffering by our proximity and connections with Britain at this stage? Well, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of cuddly tendency when we think of de Gaulle in Ireland to think about the six-week holiday after his resignation where he went down to Kerry and, you know, explored his Irish ancestry and all that, you know. But when he actually was the president uh, of France, it's fair to say that he was the international statesman or leader whom Irish politicians and diplomats were most obsessed with because the recognition was that Realistically, Ireland's path to Brussels had to go through Paris. And given the fact that realistically, Ireland couldn't join the EEC without Britain, given the, the economic ties, the fact that France and de, Gaulle, and de Gaulle in particular was adamantly opposed to British membership at this time was the single biggest obstacle. And his, his, his beef with the British was he didn't trust a special relationship with the United States within the Atlantic alliance of the Cold War. And he was also wary of Britain's its remaining links to the Empire and Commonwealth, which he didn't feel were compatible with EEC membership, you know. Um, and to that degree, it's remarkable the extent to which an obsession with um, the French position and with de Gaulle permeates through um, the documents and the, the recollections and reports of Irish diplomats. You know, are constantly trying to ascertain well what, what were the French thinking, what was de Gaulle thinking. You know, pouring over his statements and so forth. And it's fair to say that I mean, de Gaulle didn't have a he didn't have a problem with Ireland. You know, he was quite well disposed towards it. I mean, he he did ask questions along the lines of well, the state of the Irish economy. Ireland's possible future stances on political and defence matters, you know, which you'd expect to happen, you know. Um, but being well disposed wasn't exactly uh, wasn't exactly kind of a, a positive um, a positive force to get Ireland into the EEC, you know. There's a there's an account in the in the volume of um, a report by the Irish ambassador to France who uh, reports on you know a French deputy you know going up to De Gaulle and saying, hey, don't you you have Irish ancestry, don't you? Which De Gaulle did, and his answer was basically, yeah, so what. You know, so he was well disposed. Yeah, he, he professed his respect for figures like Lamas and especially Eamon de Valera. Um, he did indicate willingness to help Ireland in some ways, like with bilateral trade. So there was no issue with Ireland, but he recognised the reality that you know, if he didn't, if he wasn't going to let Britain in, well, then we couldn't come in either. But it's funny how the the whole role the EEC and the attempts to to, to join us, you know, permeate through the documents in surprising ways. Like in 1966, there was um, obviously that you had the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising being marked, and that was to be marked by Irish overseas missions. But the embassy in Brussels wrote back to Dublin saying that, well, we better be wary about this because the Belgians wouldn't really appreciate commemorating a rebellion that's widely and correctly assumed to have been done with German assistance, at least in principle. And especially, uh, they especially wouldn't like a rebellion that was associated with Roger Casement, given that he wasn't a particularly popular figure in Belgium due to his reports on the Congo. And there was also the possibility that, you know, a reception about, um, you know, commemorate the Easter Rising might provide a platform for, you know, excitable Flemish nationalists whom the Belgian government wouldn't approve of. And the whole point was, you can't really alienate the Belgians, given that they were one of the six members of the EEC. And even a couple of years later, um, when the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia, now we didn't have diplomatic representation there at that time, but... The Irish ambassador in Germany in Bonn kind of wrote a very detailed report that we published. But this conclusion was that, well, the Soviet invasion could possibly act as a wake-up call to figures like de Gaulle and to drive home the point that, you know, expanding the EEC was an imperative and might kind of prompt someone like de Gaulle to a more realistic position. So it's remarkable the extent to which that obsession would join the EEC, it often boiled down to an obsession with the French position and that could come through in surprising ways. They didn't have a problem with Ireland, 
but we were, I suppose our, our, uh, our bid for membership was collateral damage as long as de Gaulle was in power. And just on the trivia front, what was de Gaulle's Irish ancestry, do you know? His mother was descended from a family of McCartans who are apparently some of the wild geese back in the 18th century and may have been involved in the brandy trade. I noticed from starting to read a large biography of Charles de Gaulle, which I've currently left to one side, um, but I think that's it. Yeah, it's basically 18th century wild geese, so it's pretty far back. You know, it wasn't like, you know, his grandfather. You're talking, um, you know, very, very distant and tenuous. You know, enough to have a kind of, maybe a vague, almost sentimental interest, but not enough to do that many favours for a small country. Case just getting into, so Ireland's bid now hinges on showing that it can be a, a free-trading, well-behaved common market citizen and in doing so it concentrates its efforts on Northern Ireland and uh, with the UK as well. How does this go and are there any frictions in establishing this relationship and keeping it going? Well, Colm, there's a lot of documents in this volume that relate to trade and I guess this can be a bit of a hard sell for some some of your, your listeners and, and so I want to focus on one document in particular just to give you a sense of what was happening as a precursor as Michael said to joining the EC we, we had to have like a a, a practising Anglo-Irish free trade area agreement in place to prove that you know it was running smoothly and this also had a specific Northern Irish dimension and in looking at some of this there's lots of foreshadows of some of the Brexit issues that your listeners will be familiar with, in particular the protocol. So the the Irish, um, the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Area Agreement allowed for the acceleration of trade liberalisation um, for goods that originated in Northern Ireland, which were going to be exported to Ireland. Um, and there's a, a really interesting quote here from a, a very, on the face of it, boring, I would say, document from the great mind who was the driver behind uh, European integration from an Irish perspective, and that's T.K. Whitaker, who is Secretary of the Department of Finance, and he's writing to J.C. C.B. McCarthy, the Secretary of Industry and Commerce, and he's saying, I note that we will soon be in a position to announce tariff concessions on three items, namely silencer exhausts, handbags and watch straps. I mean, you know, who's interested in this? Uh, I would, I think, it would, I think, make for greater impact if uh, both here and in the North, if these three concessions were announced at the same time rather than at uh, intervals. The announcement could also be availed of to give further publicity to the government's policy in regard to tariff concessions in Northern Ireland. You know, who cares about this? But this is the pragmatic reality on the ground. This is what keeps the wheels in motion in trade going. And we only really care when those wheels come off, right? So so I think there's lots of foreshadows of Brexit in, in some of these trade-related documents. And I think it's really important to bear in mind that, you know, this is the practicality. This is the coal face of trade um, between Northern Ireland, uh, Ireland and Great Britain at this time that we had to prove that this was functioning before we could get into the EC. There's other cooperation areas maybe John can talk to as well, especially in tourism, promoting the island as a whole. And again, this idea is, you know, Everybody's talking, everybody's negotiating. The civil servants are sitting down around a table, um, looking at the border in reality on maps, deciding how to describe each jurisdiction. And that's something that I suppose we would wish for today. Is there any sense of what the reaction is on the other side of things within unionism in Northern Ireland as to what the, you know, is there any umbrage being taken at this special status for goods that in any way makes them less than British in, in that they're going ahead of where the rest of the UK is at? Uh, no, there's not. Kate made a really important point there about the acceleration of North-South trade. And the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Area Agreement, which comes into being in 1966, allows for, uh, I'll reiterate Kate's point there, faster freeing up of trade between North and South than between East and West. It's 
kind of like the protocol we have today, but the unionist government in Stormont are well in favour of it. They think it's a brilliant idea. Now, they're not going to support it so openly politically, but Terence O'Neill and Sean Lamass have reinvigorated or invigorated North-South relations since their first summit meeting in 1965. And the whole process within the island of Ireland in the years leading up to the Troubles is one of improved relations between Dublin and Belfast. And uh, the idea behind uh, the free trade area agreement is that the trade between North and South can increase, uh, can promote the economies on both sides of the border, because this is the period where, the no- where Northern Ireland is entering a period of, of structural unemployment. Harold and Wolf aren't doing as good. The linen industry isn't as, as good as it was. And the O'Neill government are looking to the South, looking to Whitaker and looking to economic planning in the South as a way to uh, reinvigorate their own economy in the North. They'll cherry-pick the best of what's going on in the South and uh, try and reinvigorate the Northern Ireland economy leading up to you know, the anniversary of the, the 50th anniversary of the founding of Northern Ireland in, 19, in 1970. And this becomes, um, I think, critical to, to the Unionist view on the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Area Agreement. There's something in it for them that's positive. They're playing pragmatic politics here. Uh, with it, very different to what we see today. You can't overemphasize the extent to which um, attitudes towards the Stormont regime had begun to shift on the part of uh, of the Irish government. Now, the concerns about discrimination didn't go away, but that willingness to uh, embark on a kind of pragmatic cooperation, though we're very explicit that um, that kind of cooperation, North South, it would be on technical matters, they would avoid bringing politics into it. But they were quite explicit about that there was a political element to this as well. I'm, I'm going to read a little extract from one document. Um, in the volume, which is, quote, I quote, Northern Ireland, having been in existence now for close on 50 years, is a firmly established political reality. We've eschewed the use of force as a means of ending partition. It follows that our objective of national unity can be achieved only through the majority decision of the people of the North as expressed through their parliament, which, we must acknowledge, is broadly representative of the views of the electorate. Now, the author of that is the Minister for Finance, Charles J. Hawhey. And... <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, and the th- and the fact that that was emanating from the minister for Fina- for finance is quite telling, you know, because it was in the context of what do you actually call Northern Ireland, um, because the the question of terminology, I mean, um, traditionally Northern Ireland was referred to as the six counties, you know, and likewise the British and the Stormont government might refer to uh, the Irish Republic or the Republic of Ireland, and there was a sense in the sixties that this kind of terminology was kind of you know, it was outdated, it was unnecessarily annoying as well, you know, and one thing that brought this to a head was a, the promotion of a joint um, North-South tourist map where they decided to put Ireland over, you know, the Irish state and indicate Northern Ireland with the border. And the point that he was making was that, you know, using the term six counties, it's just unnecessarily provocative to union. It just annoys people for no reason, you know, and there was no... There was no firm policy and suddenly, you know, no memo went out saying we're going to say Northern Ireland, you know, from here on in now, lads, you know, rather than six counties. But there was a sense coming out and it was being advised that, you know, as circumstances dictate, call it Northern Ireland. You know, there's no point really annoying people for no reason. And the hope was that even just that terminology that had been adopted for decades, just a little shift like that in relation to um, in relation to, to trade, both North, South and East, West, you know, it's kind of telling of... Um, it's kind of suggestive of kind of changing realities, but it's very telling that, you know, that was being promoted by the Minister for Finance precisely due to trade issues, economic issues, as they were coming to the fore in relationships across the border and across the Irish Sea. At this period, Northern Ireland begins to make its presence felt in uh, Irish foreign policy thinking 
Uh, why why was the Department of External Affairs, you make the point in the preamble to the book, so slow to act? Was it because it had other priorities? Did it want to show the, the world that it had moved on from being a sort of almost a single policy state about ending partition? Or were there just no formal channels to make its view known about the matter? What what's Why are they so slow to act when trouble begins to kick off, as, as you mentioned, John, around the time of the commemoration of the 1916 Rising and initially uh, with the UVF and then later the civil rights marches? Well, <clears throat> I mean, the kind of tensions that would lead to the outbreak of the Troubles in earnest, they register in the material and the volume from an early stage. You know, say 19, in October 1966, um, the British government got in touch with the Irish government about the possibility of um, repatriating the remains of Joseph O'Sullivan and Reginald Dunn, the two London IRA men, and British Army veterans, it should be said, who had shot Sir Henry Wilson in uh, London in 1922. So it was kind of a, you know, akin to the, the repatriation of Roger Casem's remains, a kind of reconciliatory gesture. Um, but the catch was that, and this is a, a quote from a British document that's kept in an Irish document, a letter from the Secretary of the Department, Hugh McCann, up to Frank Aiken, saying that there's a risk that these, ex- I quote, a risk that these exhumations may inflame opinion in Ulster, particularly in view of the present imprisonment of the Reverend Paisley, end quote. And Paisley was doing three months for unlawful assembly at that stage, you know. But there was even a sense in 1966 that trouble was brewing, and that began to come through, um, most especially after October 1968 and the attack on civil rights marches um, on, in Derry on the 5th of October of that year. I suppose, on the one hand, the, the Irish government were still fi- focused on North-South cooperation directly with the Stormont government. Um, especially given its own liberalising tendencies, which were provoking a backlash elsewhere within the unionist community. There was no obvious, there was also no obvious forum in which to do this, you know, in which to, um, in which to respond. You know, we, I mean, there was no, the machinery of kind of Anglo, of British-Irish relations that exist in the 24th century just did not exist at the end of the 1960s. Um, and from the point of view, of, I mean, Frank Aiken in particular was very wary of taking public stances on, um, on issues like discrimination um, or unrest in the North. Now, he'd be fiercely critical of it in private. You know, we'd no problem comparing the Orange Order to the Ku Klux Klan, you know, on a number of occasions. But his view was that public stances would inflame opinion. It wouldn't actually do anything productive. Um, it wouldn't lead to a positive result. And the best thing he could do was just keep dealing directly with the Stormont regime under Terence O'Neill and his successor, uh, Chichester Clark. So what, what I suppose what begins to register, what really the outbreak of the Troubles begins to register within the documents in the volume in the reports from consulates in the United States. And I'll give you, here's an account of, from 1967 of a picket outside the consulate in New York where two people are picketing outside the consulate at about half three and 17th of July um, carrying placards demanding justice for Joe Dillon who was doing five years for attempted robbery at that time. And there were two people, and then I quote, shortly after 5pm, the two pickets were joined by about eight other persons. Some appeared to be students, there was an older man and an older woman, a child of about 10 years, and a teenage girl who qualified for the designation beatnik, end quote. That's the only bit of counterculture that we've managed to squeeze in, okay? <laughs> One beatnik, you know, demanding justice for Joe Dillon. Now, that's 10 people, it's not many, and it was either, um, the, the organisation was either the American Congress for Irish Freedom or the United Ireland Publicity Committee, both fringe organisations, you know, but organisations that from October 1968 onwards began to picket Irish consulates, you know, in New York in particular, um, on a very regular and ongoing basis. And, you know, I suppose they began, what, what, what Irish consuls in the United States began to pick up were, you know, simmerings of discontent from within the Irish-American community. Like, even if these organisations were small, there was a definite sense that the ambassador, William Fay, to the United States, we 
the Irish ambassador to the US, William Fay, his view was that, you know, these groups may be small, but they generate bad publicity. And the Irish government had to get out there and start making a case for it necessarily, which was a step that Aiken himself was reluctant to um, to take. I mean, consulates in Boston were, um, or the consulate in Boston was record, was suggesting that, you know, uh, the, the, ina- the perceived inaction of the Irish government was leading to reputational damage. It might even have a bad effect on tourism, you know. And though it's interesting, given the kind of... Um, the racial politics of the Irish American community that um, Irish diplomats were wa- they were wary of making explicit comparisons between the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and the US civil rights movement, you know, due to Irish American hostility to African Americans at that time, and that comes true in a couple of reports as well. But one demand that consistently came from these protests and pickets was some sense that, or some demand that, you know, partition and discrimination, and especially the increasing repression of the Stormont regime should be raised at United Nations, you know. To what end, it was unclear that there could be a, resolu- a resolution condemning um, the activities of the Stormont regime. Aiken didn't want a resolution, you know, didn't want a kind of public stance um, being taken in the UN. But he felt as, as the situation deteriorated, he felt it was incumbent to at least let, you know, the UN know something of the situation in the North, which has prompted, which prompted a furious broadside from Ted Heath, you know. I think there was a, a really interesting document towards the end of the volume column. And and the, the reason I think this is interesting is because, like John said, it, it touches on that kind of name of the state and terminology and it ruffles a few feathers as well. And we're dealing with uh, the, the end of the volume when Frank Aiken is about to step aside. Um, uh, and then we're also looking at um, Edward Heath, Ted Heath, who, who is not yet in government, but who will be in, uh, by the time our next volume comes out. So this is the 7th of, of May 1969. Um, Heath is famously known for being particularly bad-mannered and aloof, I think it's safe to say. And I think this document really speaks to that. Um, it's a long enough quote, but I hope you'll bear with me because this really gives you a taste of where things are towards the end of the volume. So the beginning of the volume in 65, we're looking at kind of, you know, negotiations on trade. Things haven't kicked off in the North yet. Um, and this volume, I think as well, it's really a pivotal volume in the series because up until this volume, arguably, Northern Ireland isn't at the centre of our document. By the end of the volume, it pretty much is. And for the rest of the 70s, it will be. And we'll have to tackle that in the forthcoming volumes. It's going to be, they're going to be really interesting. And it does, this volume, end in a bit of a cliffhanger from that point of view, because we, we end in the summer of 69. Um, so this is a report from Jack Malloy, who's the ambassador in London at the time. And he's in a Lancaster house and he's at a reception. And apparently uh, Heath, who's the head of the Conservative Party, goes up to him and demands that he speaks to the Saunish, who's then Frank Aiken, who's in a conversation with some other people at the reception. So Malloy, you can get the sense, is quite irked by this. You know, he, he has to go over and interrupt and, and, and bring him over. So Mr. Heath, and this is a quote, said to the Saunish in a somewhat hectoring tone of voice. This is Jack Malloy r- r- writing back home to the Department of Foreign Affairs, External Affairs, that the Tory party, which he added, would be in the next government, was extremely anxious about the present position in Northern Ireland and was extremely concerned about what he described as the interference of ERA in the situation there. Now, he'd have known that the ter- using ERA would have really ruffled feathers. ERA, and these are all in quotes in Malloy's document back, had no right to interfere in the affairs of a part of the United Kingdom. To have brought the question to the attention of the United Nations, which Michael might talk to in, in a few minutes, was the very last thing the Irish government should have done era's interference could only have the effect of jeopardising the chances of peace in the part of the United Kingdom for which era had no responsibility. Mr Heath emphasised that in his opinion and in the opinion of the Conservative Party, 
which would form the next government, Northern Ireland was as much part of the United Kingdom as Yorkshire. And intervention in Northern Ireland affairs and in particular reference to the United Nations were unasked and unwarranted. The situation in Northern Ireland was purely a matter for the British government and the Northern Ireland authorities. Now, the next section is what's really interesting from a kind of foreshadowing Brexit point of view. Mr. Heath went on to say that any hope of good relations between ERA and the British government, which would be a Tory government very soon, I think he's making that point very clearly, um, had been put in jeopardy by the Irish government's decision to bring the matter to the attention of the Secretary General of the United Nations. The Tory party, he said, had never been satisfied with the terms of the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement and would, on assuming office, seek to have the agreement revised. So that's a, a habit I think the Conservatives haven't done away with. And that, I mean, to go back to that document that Kate mentioned, there's one thing that at the very end of it, it ends in a very acrimonious note between them. Um, with discussion of Berendette Devlin, you know, recently elected to Westminster. And Aiken ends up by telling Heath that she's really your baby. You know, she was the consequence of the policies of the British in Northern Ireland. So, you know, you could see things beginning to go south in a pretty, pretty rapidly. But before that, the, you could say it was more of a, more of a kind of a hands-off, a publicly hands-off policy. Though in relation to the UN, I might pass that one over to Michael because that touches on a few other things as well. Just before that, John, um, I have that quote and it's really interesting because both both uh, Heath and Aiken are, you know, long gone, but uh, Bernadette's still with us and I'd love to know what she would think of this. Um, when the Thornish has said that the Unionists in the North should recognise that we are now living in the last third of the 20th century and not in the middle of the 19th century. Mr. Heath said that Miss Bernadette Devlin, MP, was, quote, something from the last century. Her sentiments were appalling and incredible in the case of such a young girl. This remark of Mr. Heath's was made towards the end of the conversation and was countered by the Thornistas saying to Mr. Heath that he should realise that Miss Devlin is really your baby. And I'd like to think that Miss Devlin could have wiped the floor with both of them, but we'll never know. The relationship, the pragmatic relationship, maybe, uh, narrowed people's focus on what their priorities were when there were other forces coming into play that perhaps they should have paid more attention to, particularly at grassroots level. I think you've, you've, you've hit it there, really, Colm, that the problem for the Department of External Affairs is that grassroots movements, civil rights movement, housing action committees, this is something that Ivy House has no experience of dealing with. Ivy House hasn't sent diplomats to the north of Ireland since the 1950s. Uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien, Johnny Belton used to go up then on, on tours and, and meet nationalists and meet unionists and report back to Frank Egan uh, as minister. That stops in the early 1960s and in the mid-60s. So Dublin is caught on the hop. Aiken's traditional view of Northern Ireland is Northern Ireland, the problems in Northern Ireland are caused by partition. Britain caused partition. Britain can end partition. But here's a situation now where the population of Northern Ireland, the nationalist community, are not necessarily, first of all, looking for an end to partition. They're looking for equal civil rights as citizens of the United Kingdom. Uh, one person, one vote. Uh, access to housing, equal access to housing. This isn't ending partition. This is equal rights within the UK to citizens in you know, London, Bradford, Edinburgh, wherever you like. And this is something that Aiken is not capable of dealing with. And Ivy House takes quite a while to come round to that. It's probably by the summer of 1970, really, and the formation of the Interdepartmental Unit on Northern Ireland and the Anglo-Irish Division within Foreign Affairs. That, and, and by this stage, Aiken is long gone. Uh, you know, he's replaced by Paddy Hillary after the 1969 election. That 
that Dublin is beginning to think actually there are different forces at play here. John Hume is really important here, talking to Eamon Gallagher in, in Ivy House uh, in the uh, late 69 and early 1970, of actually getting the points of view across. So Aiken has an information deficit when it comes to Northern Ireland, and he can really only see uh, dealing with Northern Ireland in terms of trying to dampen down that acrimonious uh, Irish-American a constituency that's haranguing him and haranguing Ireland's permanent rep to the UN, Con Kremen, to get the northern situation brought before uh, the uh, the General Assembly or the Security Council or, or to the Secretary General, as, as Aiken eventually does. But as we said earlier, Aiken knows this is not going to work. There's going to be no positive response from the UN. In fact, it might even upset some of the members of the UN, the P5 and the Security Council, and then we're getting back to Europe, annoy the, the French, uh, annoy the British and start annoyance within that community that Lynch as Taoiseach really wants Ireland to be a positive part of as Ireland is still trying to become a member of the EC. Just on that, um, one thing that, com- that that comes out or came out in relation to um, how they dealt with the operating troubles through the United States was a kind of, there was almost an, an instinctive an instinctive tendency on the part of Aiken and, um, and his diplomats to rely on familiar well-worn channels with which to deal with the problem. I mean, say the pickets that I mentioned earlier on. Well, one one way that the Assad could account that was by uh, using the influence of the ancient order of Hibernians. You know, a law, an old and whatever one thinks about it, an old and venerable and influential organisation in Irish America, who was a New York chaplain, described the leaders of the same pickets as, or one of the leaders as, I quote, an A one lunatic. Um, there was a reluct, but there was a reluctance to engage in a kind of media kind of um, campaign initially. You know, even when unionist politicians were going to the states and were being interviewed and. Uh, suggesting that, you know, the civil rights marches in the North were communist-inspired and so forth, which apparently resonated with some uh, with some elements of Irish-American opinion for obvious reasons. But w- one thing you do see is um, a kind of recourse to friendly U.S. politicians and names like Edward Kennedy, Tip O'Neill, they, be- they begin to emerge towards the end of the volume. And in fact, the very last document in the volume is a report by the ambassador, Faye, about um, Tip O'Neill and a congressman, Philip Burton, sponsoring a resolution or a, a congressional resolution, you know, expressing their concern about the situation in Northern Ireland. And Faye's view was of a piece with the view, to, with, with Aiken's view about, you know, avoiding public stances at the UN, that, you know, the Irish government shouldn't get involved in any, ex- shouldn't take an explicit stance in relation to US congressional politics. But if friendly congressmen want to do this type of thing, that's great, well and good. And I suppose that does set up, I suppose, um, the thread of Irish American political engagement with the troubles that would because I mean names like O'Neill, Borden, others that will come down the line, you know they will feature prominently as we move into the seventies. You know so, but it's interesting at that time when Aiken was the minister, there was a tendency. This was new territory for them in more ways than one, and they were the default position was to fall back and establish networks and establish ways of exerting influence in the United States and within Irish America. This was new territory for them, you know. And, you know, it's in, it's shown by some of the names that pop up, you know. I mean, a meeting in, you know, a rally in New in uh, in, the, in Brooklyn, which is addressed by Michael Flannery, the future founder of NORAID, and Austin Curry, you know, and also attended by the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem, you know. So, you know, these, we'll, we'll, we'll be hearing more from them, you know, certainly, well perhaps not musically, but you know what I mean. I was underselling our documents earlier on when I was talking about all the trade-related material we have there. You have to remember that this period in the wider global picture is really exciting and a lot of that comes through in the volume, you know, the late 60s with the race race riots in, in the US, uh, Vietnam War reportage, that idea of new investigative journalism is really covered a lot as well, um, increased television ownership and public engagement on the back of, like John said, um, Biafra in particular, apartheid in South Africa. There's some really, really rich 
rich and interesting documents here as well. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of your listeners in particular will, will like some of the trade stuff. All right. And that's it for another episode as we wrap up in 1969. If you want to read more on this topic, and there is a lot more in the volume covering Ireland's diplomatic efforts at the UN, the beginnings of an international development NGO sector in Ireland arising out of the war in Biafra, peacekeeping and more, you can go to ria.ie and you can buy the latest volume or others through the bookshop there. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor. Thanks for listening. Now last year I was 21